All right. Wow. Jake Cherry wasting no time. Hey, everybody. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdal. It is Tuesday today, the 17th day of October. Uh, here's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks, uh, depending on you know how schedules go and news goes and all this jazz. But certainly, uh, we're going to be taking a run at climate solutions over the next period of time. Um, what we can do, the challenges we face, uh, and, and maybe how to get out of this mess. We're going to start today with nuclear energy. Right, because nuclear power is having a bit of a renaissance, to uh, claim Beyonce's term there. Um, As we look to decarbonize our economy, um, since nuclear energy does not at least directly create carbon emissions, we want to know more about what the future of nuclear energy is going to look like, what challenges the technology faces, because the technology is definitely different now than it used to be. And so here to make us smart about this is Jigger Shaw. He is the director of the Loan Programs Office at the Department of Energy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So a lot of people, when they think about nuclear energy, it's always in a bad context of meltdowns and explosions and all sorts of terrible things. Can you talk about what modern nuclear energy actually looks like? Yeah, you know, I think that most people are surprised to learn that over half of all the clean energy in the United States comes from nuclear power. And most of them have been running, you know, without any incident for over 50 years. And so when you think about modern nuclear energy, it really comes from this legacy that we have of extraordinary uh, nuclear safety record and uh, and productivity here in this country. Um, so now we are going to the next, uh, you know, set of uh, designs, which are even more safe and, you know, have other features that might make them more affordable. How reliant are we right now, just as a way to sort of set the stage, on nuclear power in this country? So there's about, you know, 92 reactors that are operating safely every single day in this country. And it produces roughly 20% of all the electricity in the United States. More importantly, you can you might recall that we use less power, let's say, in the spring and the fall mm-hmm. than we do in the summer and the winter because you use less air conditioning or heating. And those nuclear power plants, though, are providing power throughout all of those periods of time, whereas natural gas and coal plants may get used a lot less in the spring and the fall. So then earlier this year, I was doing some reporting on the Vogel plant in Georgia, which is, as far as I, I could tell, the first one to be built f- at least from scratch and to actually come online in decades. Why did it take so long and why was it able to happen there first? So the vast majority of our nuclear fleet was approved for construction at a time when we had the Atomic Energy Commission. So the Vogel nuclear plant was actually the first plant to be fully approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Hmm. uh, which we've had since the 70s. So uh, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, when you haven't done things in a long time, you sort of forget how to do them. So the Vogel nuclear plant really was a full restart of our nuclear industry. Uh, We had to train... Uh, over 13,000 new union workers, right, IBW and Layuna. Um, we had to take designs that, you know, we hadn't really built before, right? And you could imagine we had 
engineering, procurement, construction contractors that hadn't built a nuclear plant in a very long time that we had to train. And so while the Vogel nuclear plant uh, came in over budget and took a lot longer, uh, I think it is a testament to the perseverance and grit that we showed to really see it through. And today, Unit 3 is fully up and running, and Unit 4 should be up and running here in the next four or five months. So congratulations on the perseverance and grit, but look, these things cost billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. And one does wonder, first of all, whether that's sustainable just as an enterprise in these budgetary times, but also why do they cost so many billions? Well, it's one of those things where the United States does small really well, but we have a hard time with humongous Right. And one of those things is it's really about mega projects management. The Vogel nuclear plant should have spent an additional billion dollars on the front end to, you know, be prepared for managing its costs uh, on the back end. Um, And that comes out of a lot of the best practices that we published in the nuclear liftoff report here at the Department of Energy. When you look at the next generation designs, the Giatachi BWRX 300, for instance, was selected by Ontario Power Group in Canada. Um, They're spending a lot of money up front to finish the design, to get all of the pieces put in place before they start construction. And it's not something that we did um, for Vogel. Hmm. So does the fact that the Vogel project sort of ran so far over and, and all these things had to get restarted and going again, does that mean that future projects will be less expensive? I think it means that future projects will take into consideration all the best practices that we learned out of Vogel. The other piece of it, though, is that we have 13,000 trained workers that we didn't have before. And that's a big deal. When you're building a nuclear power plant, remember, the welds on a nuclear power plant last for 80 years, right? So it can't be repaired that easily. They have to be done right the first time. And When you think about what it takes to become uh, an approved welder for a nuclear power plant, it's over seven years. Wow. Hmm. Uh, how do you, just to get back up to the, to the top and, and Kimberly's question about, about, you know, popular perception of nuclear power, how do you get over the, look, legit fears that people have? They read about Fukushima here now, even a decade later. We're talking about, you know, them releasing uh, water into the Pacific and, and all the rest of that. I was in high school when Three Mile Island happened. There's a whole generation of people who remember that. Um, how, how do you get over that? I think you just have to keep showing people that, you know, we're operating things safely. I mean, remember, you know, when you get pregnant, right, your doctor asks you not to eat fish. You don't eat fish because, you know, not because people are breaking thermometers and dumping mercury into waterways. It's because we burn coal. And one of the things that comes out of coal is that mercury goes into the air. And when it rains, it goes into our waterways. Right. I mean, we somehow have gotten totally fine with burning coal and not eating fish when you're pregnant and eating Mm -hmm. mercury laden fish all year round. But with nuclear power, these things get sensationalized. And even though they operate so well, I think people are worried about the prospect of something happening when we have over 50 years of safe operations that prove otherwise. Is the 
you know, view changing? Are people getting more supportive of nuclear power, especially when we see in stark reality the consequences of continuing to burn coal and and other sorts of carbon-intensive energy production? Well, clearly climate change is a big driver, but the other big driver is that people want more electricity. I mean, when you think about ChatGBT and artificial intelligence, you know what they work on? Electricity. ChatGBT mm. alone needs 10,000 megawatts of new hyper data centers, right? We don't have that capacity today. And while I love solar and wind power, as you may know, my background is in the solar industry. Um, the solar industry is awesome, but we need a diverse set of resources. And nuclear power is going to be one of those staples that we need if we're going to take advantage of electric vehicles, heat pumps, you know, artificial intelligence, and, you know, saving all those photos of your child, you know, uh, for $1.99 a month on Apple. <laughs> um, what is the, the federal government's role in this, by the way? So the federal government plays a much larger role in nuclear than we play in most other energy technologies. Um, you know, we do a lot of research and development, of course. But in the nuclear space, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has a very large role in making sure that things are done safely. There's also a lot of subsidies required. When you think about nuclear power, it's not the same as building solar and wind where the private sector can sort of do it on its own. It really requires a real full public and private partnership, not dissimilar to the federal highway system, right, Mm. which clearly is constructed with private sector contractors, private sector suppliers of cement. But, you know, the, the federal government has a heavy role to play there. Um, what do you say to people, like, just in casual conversation, when you're talking to them about the stakes, you know, when it comes to whether and if they're in in the not-in-my-backyard camp? Well, remember, we have, you know, many uh, nuclear sites already throughout the country, right? And many of them were planned to build additional nuclear reactors at those same sites. So the people who live in those communities love nuclear power because it produces 25% of the property taxes locally. I don't know if you've ever gone to a high school and played high school sports at a high school that has a nuclear plant nearby. It's always like... <laughs> are, are there? Sorry, are there a lot of those? A lot of those. And in fact, there are three women here in the federal government who came from uh, one high school in New Hampshire. I grew up near the Byron nuclear power plant. And every time we played tennis against them, I was like, wow, are these brand new courts? Um, It was (laughs) was great, right? So the folks there all want more nuclear reactors because they know their current nuclear reactors are 50 years old and they want to extend that, you know, that nuclear workforce, which is often union, that live there, right? Um, We also have over 200 coal plants that are already announced uh, for shutting down or have already shut down. And those coal plants play the same role for those communities. They're 25%, 50% of the property taxes in that Mm. community, some of the highest paying jobs in that community. And folks want that to continue. And so there's a lot of communities around the country asking us to repurpose that existing infrastructure, right? Because there's a big transmission line there. There's a lot of uh, cooling water locally. And so you can actually just put a new nuclear plant on top of an old coal plant. Hmm. So just to sort of bring it to a close, right now, nuclear is about 20% of of our power supply in this country. How 
high do you want, think, should, does it need to be, do you suppose, if we're going to succeed in making nuclear a real part of, of clean energy and the transition to it? I think people have a hard time wrapping their brain around what's happening today. We have not had any electricity growth in 20 years. Sorry, so that, gonna, sorry, is that like no new generation? We have only just retired old stuff and replaced it with some new stuff. But in but terms of net, how net, much electricity we use today, right. it's the same as 2003. Hmm. Right? That number is going to double probably over the next 20 years. When that happens, just to maintain 20%, we'll have to build roughly 200 gigawatts of additional nuclear power. So I don't think that number has to go up from 20%. Right. I think we have to keep it there. Right. And it's just got, it's got to go up in absolute terms, right? That's yeah. the deal. Yeah. That's right. Jigger Shah is the director of the Loan Programs Office. He's at the Department of Energy. Jigger, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks thank so you. much for your interest. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't know it was 20%, first of all. I should have known that. I, I didn't know either. I think that, you know, it's one of those things that you know if you look into it. I think I knew it when I was working on the story about the Vogel yeah, plant. Yeah, but even yeah. then, I was, I forgot it. But even then when I was talking to them and they were saying, and I, and I heard people talking about repurposing coal plants into nuclear power plants, um, I think these are like such smaller scale nuclear plants because... I have to imagine a lot of people have the Simpsons nuclear power plant yeah, exactly. in mind half the exactly. time when they're exactly. thinking about this, this giant sort of hourglass-shaped thing off in the distance mm -hmm. spewing, you know, smoke or whatever. And that's just not really like how these look anymore. They're much smaller and, and just different in in scale. But I guess this is the future. <laughs> no joke. No joke. Also, I, I all respect to Mr. Shaw, I think he undersells the, uh, oh, my God, Chernobyl factor. You know, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I don't have, you know, a a memory of these things happening mm -hmm. as much as the fear and the right. aftermath, right. and and I'm probably the last generation that sort of um, <laughs> took shelter under school desk in those drills, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, sort of preparing for the the weapon side of things. But yeah, I think that. The fear factor is yeah. kind of the big barrier yeah. here. Totally. Totally. All right. Well, let us know what you think about a resurgence in nuclear energy and uh, what role, if any, you think it should play in our clean energy economy. Um, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We will be right back. All right, news. Kimberly Adams, what do you got? I keep clicking between our script and um, C-SPAN, trying uh -huh. to look at the vote that yep. is going on right now as we're recording this. Uh, the first round of, of voting for speaker, and we've already got news that it's going to have to go to a second ballot because nobody has enough to make it in this first round, just given the voting in progress so far. And the piece that I was reading this morning that really struck me was one in Politico. So obviously, Jim Jordan um, of Ohio is the Republicans, some of the most of the Republicans yeah. choice at this part, choice to be Speaker of the House. He doesn't seem to have enough votes to make it through, at least on the first ballot. Who knows, by the time most folks are listening to this, he might. 
But Politico and several other news organizations were walking through in their newsletters this morning sort of what a Jim Jordan speakership should would mean. And there was a section that jumped out at me in Politico's playbook this morning. It said, it's hard to underplay the stakes. Electing a Speaker Speaker Jordan would mean installing a firm Donald Trump loyalist atop the House, one even more willing to embrace the former president's desires and tactics than McCarthy was, a significant player in the plan to undo Joe Biden's presidential victory. It's easy to imagine the House moving appropriations bills that would defund DOJ's Trump probes or zero out various Biden cabinet officials' salaries, or voting to impeach Biden, or shutting down the government over policy fights with Democrats. And then over in uh, the, let's see, Washington Post, no, no, CNBC has a story saying that Google, Amazon, and Apple could see antitrust bills put on hold if Jim Jordan is House Speaker Mm -hmm. because he seems to not have the appetite to do big tech regulation. And so while it's relatively easy to kind of dismiss the partisan bickering and, you know, we haven't really been dismissing it. It's obviously put the House on hold. We've talked about the threat of a government shutdown. We've talked about how um, military aid can't move through and all these other things. But just even if they do pick someone, it really does matter who it is in terms of how this country's economic policy is going to go. Yeah, it, it's a huge, huge, huge vote. It's an enormous decision. It has incredible ramifications. And, oh, by the way, sorry, this is my own little pet peeve. Speaker of the House is second in line to the presidency. Jim Jordan's an election denier. He was talking to Donald Trump on the 6th of January. I, I'm, I don't, I got nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I got I, I'll be curious how many votes it goes today, yep. whether it gets sorted today. Are we going to do more? But uh, we, the news is in progress as we are talking right now. It is. So. All right. Uh, here's mine. Not in progress. It's actually yesterday, but I missed it. Otherwise, I'd have. Um, oh, no, it's today. Sorry. It's today. But it's late over there. Uh, their time. Israel time. It's an article in Bloomberg. I will read it to you and then I will opine for about. 10 seconds. Israel said on Tuesday, I'm quoting Bloomberg now, Israel said on Tuesday it's in talks with Elon Musk's SpaceX to set up a Starlink satellite network to bolster wartime communications ahead of an expected ground incursion into the Gaza Strip. Now, number one, have the Israelis learned nothing from the Ukrainians, right, who had a whole Mm. rigmarole with Elon Musk and using Starlink to target in Crimea? We talked about that when it happened. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is... Again, has Israel learned nothing by watching Elon Musk on the company, uh, the social media company that he owns, and his boosting of anti-Semitic tropes, um, his support of um, uh, anti-Semitic actors on that um, uh, platform? And I don't get it. That's it. That's what I got. I'm not getting a lot of things these days. Not many things making sense for me. Yeah, there's a lot of things that just don't make sense in general, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. unless you, you know, uh, apply the basis of human instincts to motivations, which yeah. I try really hard not to do yeah. on yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. All right. <sighs> We're going to the news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from oh, wow. Charleston, South Carolina. Can I have a follow-up question? It has me thinking and <sighs> feeling a lot of things. 
So last week we talked about why schools run by the Department of Defense uh, are out, outperforming a lot of other schools in the United States with more funding for teacher pay, um, a lot more stability, so stability sometimes in the families, and also well-stocked school supply cabinets, which are a big part of it. And we actually heard back from a teacher. Hi, this is Emily from California. As a teacher, I absolutely spend my own money on supplies. I bought pencils, art supplies, even printer paper one year. I wanted to point out that this is actually baked into this system so much that there's a $300 tax deduction uh, for teachers who spend their own money on their own supplies. It's in the tax code. Thanks for making me hmm. smart. Hmm. That is just messed up on so many levels. So like, many levels. <laughs> we have this problem. Let's bake it into the tax code and just accept that it's a problem that we're not going to fix. And then yep. $300? This is like nothing. <laughs> That's, That's it? ridiculous. <laughs> so, it's like nothing. Like, the fact that the write-off exists is problematic in, at the beginning. And the fact that it's not enough is even worse. But then on the other hand, do you want teachers spending even more of their salaries? No, but we know that teachers are going to spend more of it because they care. Mm -hmm. And then they can't even get a full tax write-off for it. It's messed up on so no many levels. Yes. All right. Before we go, as we always do, this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Kai Bird. He is the co-author of American Prometheus which if you saw the movie this summer, you know, is his biography, uh, along with his co-author, whose name I cannot remember for the life of me, and I apologize for that, of Robert Oppenheimer, which is funny because we were talking about nuclear power today. Anyway, so mm -hmm. here he is, Kai Bird, on what he thought he knew but later found out he was wrong about. As a young expatriate American growing up in the Middle East, I witnessed all the region's terrible wars. The 1956 Suez War, the 1967 June War, the Jordanian Civil War of 1970, the September 1970 hijackings, the October 1973 war. But I truly thought that by the time I was in my 70s, well, surely there would be peace, and surely there would be a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conundrum. I guess I was mistaken. That's a historian right there. Martin Sherwin, by the way, is the co-author of American Prometheus with um, Kai Bird. History matters, people. Yeah. History matters. Hmm. Truly does. If you've got an answer to the Make Me Smart question or you want to recommend someone who you think should come on the show and answer mm -hmm. said question, mm -hmm. which is what is something you thought you knew you later found out you were wrong about, our number, 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg. Seeker Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Juan Carlos Dorado is going to mix it down later. Our intern is Neela Farshabandi. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. I should go see that movie again. It was a long haul, but it was a good movie. It was, but I got to see the Barbie movie first still. Oh, yeah. I only got the Oppenheimer side of the Barbenheimer. <laughs>